I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in our series, Exodus. Blood, frogs, flies. The plagues are among the most recognizable stories in all of Scripture. Are they portraits of how an angry God smites evildoers, or weird ancient bedtime stories, or something else entirely? Here's a story for you. In 2002, so this is a while ago, a, uh, a friend of mine dropped by with a stack of new CDs. Those are compact discs for those in the know. Yeah, that's right. Both of us, uh, my friend and I, had the same kind of, I don't know, niche taste that in, would incline one to share a stack of CDs with another person. This is the only real way to find the kind of music that we like to listen to. It was, after all, a pre-streaming service, uh, pre-social media era. So if the kind of thing that you might like to listen to it would probably never be played on the radio or on MTV, then you have to go looking for it yourself or wait for a friend to show up at your door with it. And since there were no smartphones, and it would be another, I actually fact-checked this, it would be another year before I even found out what an iPod was, uh, we bought and carried and traded compact discs, big zip-up binders full of these things. You remember that? That's right. Yeah, it was a beautiful thing. Not really. It was cumbersome, and that somehow the, the book itself ruined the CDs. I don't know how that worked. When uh, we kept them in our cars, and we took them on trips, and this friend of mine, he came over with a few new releases to share. Have you heard? He asked me in 2002, the new album by a band called Pedro the Lion. Now, oh my God, wow. Okay. You don't even know where this is going. <laughs> but great, yeah, just the mention of the name. Uh, if you don't know, if you're not one of these people that just screamed, uh, Pedro the Lion was, and I guess is, the moniker of a, a one-man band led by a dude called Dave Bazan. He was famous in the indie world at the time, even way before then, for very gentle, very slow, sad, sweet music. But, and I knew this, but my friend showed up and he said, this new album is different. And then he put it on, and he and I were transfixed. Because that's what uh, music lovers also did in those days. You sat in front of a stereo and like took out an actual object and put it there. And then the two of us just sat in chairs listening to it, facing the stereo like it was a TV, like those kids in A Christmas Story listening to Little Orphan Annie. Do you remember that? Anyway, it's not in my notes. Now, <laughs> some stuff that one liked 20 plus years ago, you stopped liking at some point. Is kind of a, uh, a taste contingent on the era. Or sometimes you revisit old stuff to sort of scratch some nostalgic itch. But all these later, years later, I got to tell you, that album, Control, is still one of my favorites. One of the only records on which my wife, and Abby, my wife Abby and I agree on its greatness. Control, if you don't know, tells the story of a businessman who's involved in an extramarital affair who's eventually killed by his spurned wife. And it's raucous kind of lo-fi drumming and chainsaw guitars braided together by Bazan's sad, bittersweet melodies make it something really special. But it's Control's literary sensibility and raw honesty that really made it unique among its peers at the time, mostly because Bazan was a Christian then. And we Christians weren't used to getting art this thoughtful <laughs> or, or this risky. Eventually... 
Dave Bazan would very publicly and very vocally denounce his Christianity, and even so, just recently, he set out on the road to play that record, Control, in its entirety. I watched clips from the tour online, curious as I was, and during at least one of these sets, maybe every night for all I know, Bazan described the season of his life all those years ago in which these albums were birthed as the time he had been in an abusive relationship. And he sort of smiled and gestured at the sky and then back to himself, indicating that the abuse he'd suffered had been from God. And the audience kind of laughed as they were in on the joke. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Is God abusive? Christians certainly can be. Spiritual abuse is a term that I'd actually never heard some 10 or so years ago, and now I hear it all the time. What is spiritual abuse? Years ago, someone decided to leave our church, and I thought it was somewhat amicably. It happens from time to time for one reason or another. But then months after they had left, I was told by someone that this person that had left was accusing the church of spiritually abusing them. And that term was still kind of new to me which was surprising because I'd never really had any significant interactions with this person beyond the routine exchange of pleasantries. Can you spiritually abuse someone without really talking to them directly? I didn't know. But there it was, the very serious term hanging in the air like a terrible stink. And in the years that followed, it began, it began to color much of the kind of vitriolic anti-church rhetoric of social media tribalism. And then I went and wrote this thing encouraging Christians to remain faithful to the way of Jesus and to the church, which is not a popular concept. And I was told by some that the book itself was spiritually abusive, that I intended to shame vulnerable people for, and I quote, leaving systems of harm. Now, to be perfectly honest, uh, spiritual abuse is still a term that confuses me. Other genres of abuse, like uh, when someone puts a word like physical or verbal or even sexual in front of that word, they hardly leave as much room for interpretation. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that spiritual abuse, however you define it, is a real thing and that real people have suffered under it. My curiosity has less to do with doubt about its authenticity and more to do with a, a sincere desire to understand what it means. If a person in a position of religious leadership were to threaten others with hell or divine retribution for correcting them or for, say, leaving a cult, well, sure, that's straightforward enough. You might call something like that spiritual abuse. But is a church itself a system of harm? Because church, like any community with a shared worldview or a shared way of life, upholds the standard of accountability. And this means at some point, you might hear something that you do not want to hear. At some point, you'll probably be asked to live differently than you probably want to live in that moment. I know I have. At some point... Someone will probably warn you that things might go south if you don't change your behavior. Or what if God tells you something you don't want to hear? And what if you don't listen to what God says? And what if something bad happens when you don't? Open your Bibles to the book called Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, tonight we reach one of the most famous stories in Exodus and really in the entire library of writings we call the Bible. This is serious Prince of Egypt stuff. The plagues. Now you feel weird for hooting and hollering, don't you? <laughs> Cheering for the plagues. Last week, uh, when we left off in the story, the people of Israel were suffering under the Egyptian slave drivers. God appears to a man called Moses in a burning bush. Moses was a man hiding from his past, hiding from his pain, a pain 
that he had kind of tucked away in the early years of his life, a man who had forgotten who God was and who he was, but God hears the suffering of his people, Israel. He finds this hurting lost man, Moses. He reminds Moses who God is and who Moses is, and he says, now, together, let's go do something about this injustice. Now, let's read from Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The story goes, Moses answered this charge from God to go tell Pharaoh to set his people free. What if they do not believe me or listen to me? And they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? As if God can't see it. I love it. It's hilarious. A staff, Moses replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and Moses ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that was a strange story, almost like a weird magic trick. This is how God intends to disclose his majesty to the Egyptians with a weird kind of snake trick. Now, for weeks, we've been talking about and unpacking the literary allusions in Exodus that harken back to Genesis, the book that precedes it within this library of the Hebrew scriptures. In Exodus, Pharaoh, the ruler over Egypt, and really the ruler over the known world, as far as Moses is concerned, Pharaoh is depicted as the new serpent, the being that enslaves and oppresses God's people and disrupts God's plan to bring fruition and joy and life, as did the serpent in Eden that deceived and enslaved the first humans and disrupted God's plan for fruition and human flourishing. So how will anyone believe that Moses has been sent by the true creator God to deliver his people? God will give him power over the snake. God declares authority over the snake, and he is now vesting that authority in his servant, Moses. So, let's see what happens. Turns to, turn to the next chapter, Exodus 5. In verse 1, we read, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, or more literally, who is Yahweh, that I, shall obey, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. In Genesis, God reveals himself to characters like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob by his proper personal name, Yahweh. But as Genesis concludes and Exodus begins, suddenly God is no longer referred to by his proper name, Yahweh, but instead referred to as a category title, Elohim, which is a Hebrew word that just refers to any number of spiritual beings, angels, demons, gods with a lowercase g, or in this case, Yahweh. So the brilliant kind of haunting subtext here in Exodus is that a distance has somehow yawned open between Israel and Yahweh, and they have forgotten his name. And again, in the ancient world and throughout the scriptures, really, a name is more than just the semi-unique way one's parents choose to identify their children. One's name is their character, their identity. It reveals who they really are. 
So when God comes to Moses in the burning bush, Moses actually asks God, who are you? Who should I say that you are if I do go tell anyone you sent me? And God answers with his proper personal name, I am Yahweh. I am not just a God, I am the God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who hears the cries of the oppressed and remembers his promises and does something about injustice and suffering. That is who I am forever and ever, and you can tell everyone else the same exact thing. So Moses is obedient. I mean, they go back and forth for a while. You can read the whole story on your own time. But eventually he's obedient. He goes and tells Pharaoh what God said, but Pharaoh answers, who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. And then Pharaoh is actually offended by the whole exchange, the audacity of this guy Moses coming in, demanding the release of his people in the name of some God I've never heard of. So Pharaoh makes things even worse for the Israelites as a gesture of his power and his mercilessness to put the fear back in them and insist on his own authority and his might. And then Moses is understandably discouraged. He goes back to God, kind of defeated, and says, well, why did I even come here? Your plan didn't work. I only made everything worse for my own people, and now they're not going anywhere. But turn over to chapter 6, verse 1, and look at this ominous thing that God says in reply to Moses' discouragement. The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. And now the plagues begin. But another way of understanding what we most often describe as the quote-unquote plagues are 10 unique specific acts of decreation. Creation is in the biblical narrative, especially in Genesis, when God brings order out of chaos. But decreation is when God allows the consequences of rebellion and disobedience to be known and to be experienced as ordered goodness spirals into chaotic destruction. And he does this to save those who rebel. When I was a kid, I thought of the plagues as a sort of unmethodical storybook madness. I didn't think there was any rhyme or reason to it. I thought of it almost like the silliness of a Dr. Seuss story. I will not eat them in a house. I will not eat them in a... It's just like a compilation of words, blood, frogs, and so on, just weird stuff. Not so. The artist... God, Yahweh, is enacting incredible symbolic performance art in these 10 acts of de-creation. First, if you know the story, the Nile River turns to blood. Now, earlier in the Exodus story, Pharaoh actually demands that any time a woman gives birth, an Israelite woman gives birth, if it's a boy, the newborn has to be immediately thrown in the Nile River and drowned. Now, as God brings these acts of decreation on Egypt, the Nile River turns to blood. God is passing judgment on that heinous evil, declaring the guilt of Egypt with a powerful, visible, and physical symbol. Because of Egypt's evil, Egypt's evil the Nile, which was for them a source of life, has become tainted with death. It's as if God is saying, I am the God who sees evil and judges it. I know what you did. Now repent before it's too late. Let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't do it. So next, frogs. In fact, we read that the Nile will teem with frogs, which is a deliberate allusion to Genesis 1 when God said, let the water teem with living creatures. In Genesis 1, God is blessing the waters. Things are as they should be. 
But in Exodus 8, the consequence of persistent rebellion is chaos and upheaval, things as they should not be. And things are getting worse. Next come the Nats. I'm from uh, Georgia. Actually, our uh, local baseball team. Are they still called this, Mike? What, what did they change their name to? What? <laughs> they used to be the Savannah Sand Gnats. Uh, gnats are kind of an, I don't know if they're actually invasive, but they're an annoying species in Savannah, Georgia. And they bite you all throughout the summer. The mascot was a big, uh, like a gnat with, a humanoid gnat with saber-toothed tiger teeth to represent their annoying bite. But they changed it to the Savannah Bananas. Wow them and whoever came up with the Portland Pickles need to get together and have a conversation. <laughs> Guys need some better ideas out here. Or, or what do I know about baseball? Anyway, next come the gnats. The story goes, Yahweh said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. In Genesis, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So what was previously the raw material from which God brought forth life, now defiant sin is calling death from that same dust. God is an artist, a subversive one. And it gets better. Watch this. It goes on. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. Now that word swarms actually shows up throughout Genesis to describe abundant life, as in the earth and the sky and the sea swarmed with living things. But here, the swarms are flies, which is an organism drawn to rot and decay and death, a harbinger of encroaching death. But Pharaoh will not listen. So then God separates the livestock of Israel from the livestock of Egypt. Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Separating one thing from another is an important part of the creation narrative in Genesis 1. It's marked by God bringing order by separating one thing from another. God separates, for example, light from dark, night from day, sky from land, land from sea, male from female, in order to bring order and usher in new goodness and life. But here, the separation ushers in death or de-creation. Next, boils, gross. I was actually confused by this one, but I was shocked and amazed to learn that Hebrew scholars point out that the word for boils is the Hebrew word for snake backward. And maybe that sounds like a stretch to some of us, but actually this kind of wordplay, rearranging letters and Hebrew anagrams, is a technique used throughout the Hebrew scriptures to make an important point, to catch the Hebrew reader's eye and seize their imagination. The snake, the serpent, he is behind sin and destruction, and God is passing judgment on the snake. Next comes hail. The hail will fall on every person, on every animal, that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Sound familiar? The land, the plants, the animals, the people, everything that God called forth to life in Genesis will now fall to death and decreation if Pharaoh does not repent. Same thing with locusts, which is the worst one by far to me. My only irrational phobia is of giant grasshoppers, so hate this thing, hate even reading it. Locusts, 
in the story destroy everything that is specifically created on day three of the Genesis creation narrative. And then darkness is, of course, an inversion of God's famous creative one-liner, let there be light. Now, let there be darkness, the consequence of sin from creation to de-creation. And then, finally, things get much, much worse. The final act of decreation: every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Now, we'll talk all about the final plague because it kind of deserves its own teaching, the implications, what it means, Passover, the destroyer, all of that next week. For tonight, zooming out, the epic of the plagues or the ten acts of decreation, they were a real-life performance art masterwork in which God, in His patience and mercy, pleaded for repentance allowing only glimpses at first of the coming chaos in an effort to stall death. And in the story, we read the phrase, so that you will know that I am Yahweh, seven times. God will demonstrate His character and identity through gracious warnings of decreation and an ongoing invitation to repentance and salvation so that you will know who He really is. Moses, who had forgotten, Pharaoh, who demanded in his arrogance, who is Yahweh? So seven times God says it, you will know. Seven is the Hebrew number symbolizing completion. So after God has said this seven times, the work comes to something of a conclusion. So could Pharaoh have let Israel go? Did God actually intend to persuade him? and to have mercy? Or was Pharaoh kind of a pawn in God's precluded theater of decreation? If you're familiar with the Exodus story, then you already know that there's this strange divisive line that appears again and again throughout the story, infamous for its ability to conjure theological disagreement in an instant, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. If you're unfamiliar, here's how it goes in the story. It unfolds thusly. First, with the blood, we read Pharaoh's heart quote, was hard. Who hardened it? It's ambiguous. It doesn't say. It just says that it was hard. Next, with the frogs, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So Pharaoh did it. With the gnats, Pharaoh's heart, again, was hard. There's the ambiguity one more time. Flies, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then again, with the livestock, finally, Pharaoh's heart was hard. Meaning, Pharaoh is depicted as the first agent in the hardening of his own heart, or as simply the one who had a hard heart, six times in a row. But then, at one point in chapter 9, the author finally connects the sort of passive state of Pharaoh's heart, that his heart, quote-unquote, was hard, with Pharaoh's own agency. Look, here's what I mean. We read this. He and his officials hardened their hearts, so they did it. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So even what seemed ambiguous at first becomes clear. Pharaoh was always the active agent. His heart was hard, and he continued to steal it against God's pleas for repentance. And then the seventh plague. When we get to the boils, we read, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then again, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen. But not until you reach the seventh plague. Seven is, again, the Hebrew number that represents what? Anyone listening five minutes ago? Completion. Oh, that's so reassuring. Thank you so much. 
It represents completion. God, I love this stuff. You can't make this up. The author seems to be saying that when Pharaoh had, of his own will, of his own volition, again and again and again, completely closed his heart off to the possibility of repentance, God then enters the story in a unique way, conducts the symphony to harrowing crescendo so that he can save who will be saved by using Pharaoh's hardened heart which is kind of God's trademark, bringing good out of the evil he does not design. And it works. During the seventh and tenth plagues, we actually learn that some Egyptians do repent. They acknowledge Yahweh as the true God, and they take shelter with the Israelites. So even in the midst of one of Exodus's more heart-rending scenes, especially the tenth plague, it reads differently in the context of its own greater narrative. See, when Pharaoh called for the death of the Israelite firstborn sons, it was merciless. It was without restraint. Every baby boy drowned him in the river. But Yahweh pleads with Pharaoh across six incredible demonstrations of miraculous divine intervention. He sends a literal messenger into Pharaoh's house that warns him out loud, God says, stop doing evil or there will be consequences and Pharaoh just won't listen. And even in the midst of the fever pitch plague, the 10th and final plague, Yahweh still provides an escape and makes it available to the Egyptians. When Yahweh finally enters into Pharaoh's kind of settled state, he never puppeteers Pharaoh completely like overriding and commandeering his autonomy altogether. Instead, he works uniquely within the man and the time and the place to exact something incredible and to tell a story which is the story we're telling tonight about evil and decreation and warnings and repentance and redemption. Imagine a small child fixated on a furnace. Kids are weird like that. The child uh, wants to touch the furnace because it glows or it makes a strange sound. It looks imposing. It looks alien. So the child is curious, determined to touch the furnace. But the child's father says no lifts the child from the furnace, seizes the child's outreached hand again and again and again, and the pattern repeats itself until the father, in his wisdom, knowing the exact temperature of the furnace, measuring the inevitable injury, releases the child to its determination. The child touches the furnace and cries out in pain. And then furious, the child whirls around at the father and finds the father with tears in his eyes as he comes to him, doctors the red fingertips, knowing the little burn has become an important lesson in trust. Did the father burn the child? Was the father mad? My son, uh, Beck, is, like his dad, an emotional person. Big, wild emotions, again, like his father. And they sometimes get the best of him. Not like me. <laughs> uh, and once, uh, in a fit of anger, he kind of threw his hands to his face, Kevin McAllister style, where they met with this like audible slap. He was so frustrated and, and it shocked me. I took him gently but deliberately by his wrists and I pulled his hands from his reddening cheeks and I told him seriousness in my voice, do not do that. And he was struck by the intensity of my reaction. And I told him, no one, no one is to hit my son. How many times, I wonder, has God in his infinite wisdom 
allowed me to touch the furnace after dozens of explicit warnings of the outcome. How many times has God taken me by the wrists and stopped me from hitting myself? In one of the Apostle Paul's most famous beloved quotes, he summarizes what we're getting at tonight with this teaching by saying, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life, eternal life, life to the fullest through Jesus, the King, our Lord. Sin, which is a word that means uh, quite literally to fail or to miss, to miss the mark of God's ideal, sin pays out death. That is the natural, inevitable consequence of when humanity attempts to define what is best for themselves and for other people apart from God. Death is not God's petty, vindictive retribution on those who don't follow his weird, arbitrary rules. It is the natural inevitability of choosing to reject the author of life. Choose to reject the author of life, the result is, of course, death. But notice in Paul's language, he doesn't go on to say that eternal life is the wages of righteousness, as in, if you live good, it pays out in life. It's the oldest, most beautiful salvation adage in church speak. Salvation is, in Paul's language, a gift, as was each visitation from Moses in the palace of Egypt, not repent or die, but a plea from a good father, don't touch the furnace. And more than that, God will only suffer the blood of the innocent for so long. He will only pull us from the furnace so many times. In Exodus, Pharaoh represents the dominion of the serpent. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, he said, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. He actually got that idea from Jesus, who said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral ground, and there are no neutral people. When, then, does patience become enabling? God is the God who looked on the oppressor, on an empire that tore newborn babies from the arms of their screaming mothers and threw them into the river to drown. And God, in his patience, invited repentance, not once, but many, many times. But God is also the God who will finally call an end to this exchange in the name of delivering the oppressed and destroying evil. And that's good news or bad news, depending on where you're sitting. There's more to say about that next week, but tonight, to end, consider this. In what ways has your Father in heaven, throughout your life, asked you to change? In what ways is he asking you now? How many times has he asked to change, to stop, to repent, or to act Something small, maybe, to get up early, to take responsibility for your spiritual formation or for the spiritual formation of your kids, to pursue 
that calling that he put on your heart long ago to confess, to respond. Now, it's true that it's not appropriate to translate this story with like hyper-specificity to our time and place. I do not believe that God is like going to give you six incredible plagues and six chances before you're done for. And the next thing you know, the Red Sea is closing over your head. Pharaoh is actually unique in the scriptures because he's a tyrant responsible for wholesale oppression and slaughter, which is a position none of us are in. And this story is uniquely set in Israel's history and in ours to tell us something about God and about us. But even though it's not us specifically and it doesn't translate to us perfectly, the story does tell the truth. God comes and he pleads, repent and we get to respond. What happens if God does let us touch the furnace or allows us to strike ourselves in a fit of foolish tantrum? What do we say and do when God tells us something we don't want to hear? Accuse him of abuse? Ignore him? Defy him? For how long? I don't mean this as a story to strike fear into your hearts because honestly, I don't read it as one. I read it as a literary masterpiece overflowing with powerful symbolism and allusions and numerology and wordplay and as a story that tells the truth, a true story. I read it as simply as a children's story that says this, this is what God is like. He comes to save, he patiently pleads, but he does act. Disobedience has consequences. Not a smacked hand from a petty and impatient taskmaster, but the natural outworking of life apart from God. So what is he asking tonight? And then what will you say and what will you do? Let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak and to lead us to the truth. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.